Hello and welcome to Ideas Matter. Before introducing this podcast, firstly, a Christmas appeal for financial support. This year, 2021, has marked the 10th anniversary of the Academy, the annual summer school organised by BOI Charity, which gives the opportunity for people of all ages to come together for a series of lectures, seminars and discussions based around an important topic of our times. Over the years, we've covered topics as diverse as free will and determinism, the self, popular sovereignty, and the emergence and evolution of the culture wars. Due to COVID circumstances, we've been denied the opportunity for the past two years to meet in person, but we have nevertheless kept going with our Academy Online events, which at a period when social life has been locked down, have helped keep intellectual life alive. We enabled all those who attend our events and listen to these podcasts to explore important developments. That includes how psychological theories have become intertwined with the operation of democracy and how and why we've seen the return of race to the forefront of political discussion. But in order to do these events, we rely upon financial support from those who recognise the value of keeping the intellectual fires burning. We've very big plans for a return to real-life, face-to-face events in 2022. But in order to do so, we urgently need to raise funds to be able to undertake the planning of a major event, pay for a venue, and to make the practical arrangements for a summer school that we hope will confirm and celebrate the return of face-to-face social and intellectual life. So we need your support to make sure that summer 2022 will be marked by the first event of the second decade of the Academy. To help us out, I'd urge you to visit the donations page of our website. You can find it at the boi.co.uk forward slash donate. And if you can gift aid your support or set up a standing order for regular contributions, then so much the better. Many thanks. And now, on with the podcast. In this episode, we feature the third full-length lecture in our series, The Elite, Old and New. The talk is entitled Globalism and the Challenge to the International Elite. In recent years, populist movements have thrived on a sense of anger at global elites who have distanced themselves and even removed political control from their own national populations. The coronavirus pandemic has further served to suggest that the global system is extremely fragile. Yet the likes of COP26 conference on climate change suggests that the appetite for supranational decision-making is as in vogue as ever. This lecture examines the evolution of the globalist elite and asks what its prospects are in the post-populist, post-pandemic world. The lecturer is Bruno Waterfield, Brussels correspondent at The Times. actually want to talk about one of the few defining characteristics of the new elite, very disparate, fluid um, grouping, as we've heard. But they do have one, certainly one tenet of of faith, and that's a belief in the uh, supranational, in an international order, which particularly expressed in its highest form is the the European um, Union. So support for the supranational is one of the markers of today's new elite. It is also, in terms of support for the supranational, um, one of the ways in which the new elite shows its superiority um, over the rest of society, an establishment of finger-wagging experts um, ruling ruling over a less educated multitude. 
the whole whole Brexit debate um, then and now actually um, is a case in point. It's about moral. Um, it's about moral instruction, and one of the the articles of that moral instruction is that the supranational, the international order, um, is important. So let's have a just a quick look at what I mean by the supranational principle and why is it the pivot point for the new elite? Um, why is it the acid test? So the, the supranational redefines politics away from the old idea um, of public um, in, uh, of a public interest. Um, it's become integral to elite rule over the last um, 30 years, almost invisibly um, at times, and represents probably the most profound constitutional development in the conduct of politics um, since the rise um, of democracy at the start of the 20th century, but in the other direction, it's entirely, entirely um, regressive. So the arguments for and against the supranational, and I'll come to the, some of the detail on this, especially the EU um, in the European context. And I'm going to stick actually largely um, to the European context um, because that's where um, that's where we are. Um, is is about the nature of of politics. Um, who participates in politics and for whom uh, political um, structures are organised. And again, I want to just insist that it is a defining feature, it's probably the most identifiable um, organising um, principle, the most solid expression um, of a flight um, from accountability, one of the most solid expressions of the place where the new elite finds most coherence, which is in expressing its distaste um, for voters, this distaste um, for us. So the idea of a supranational, um, it's integral, integral now to, to European statecraft, even to the British elite after Brexit. And it dates back to the famous Europe Direct, uh, Declaration of 1951, which set in train the, the, the current setup. Participating parties give their proof, give proof of their determination to create the first supranational um, institution. Um, and thus they are laying the true foundation of the organised uh, Europe, etc. Schumann and all that, that lot. Um, but it's an interesting declaration because it's the first time that people talk about creating and are creating a supranational institution. And the Latin word supra is an interesting one. It means placing above, over or beyond. Um, by making institutions supranational, you place them above, over or beyond the national, the nation, the people. It's an explicit declaration of dissolving that link, dissolving that link between the nation and the state, dissolving or beginning to dissolve um, that link um, between uh, elites um, and the nation. Supranational authorities are the highest. They're above everything, especially um, the nation. In the immediate post-war period, there was a fairly solid political realm defined by right and left, the Cold War, and all the rest of it. And so this new element, the supranational, um, was fairly invisible or constrained to policing, you know, Franco-German conflicts over coal and steel productions, later to highly technical uh, regulations such as common safety standards, or VAT later on. Many of those often came from other international bodies such as the ILO. Um, but with an emerging force via the evolution of the common uh, later single market. 
This led again, almost invisibly sometimes, to a new rule of law, completely alien concept um, uh, in, 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 in British politics, certainly, around the primacy of the European Court of Justice, establishing a supranational constitutional principle um, that would expand, um, in, particularly in the 90s, as the democratic political realm contracted with the hollowing out of mass parties, um, and the end of a traditional left-right battle of alternatives, ruling the void, as, as, as the book, Mir's book, makes um, so clear. Um, it's important to note um, that the most defining tendency in technocratic culture, and it's odd, if you think about it, technocratic culture, we have a very sort of inconsonant in many ways uh, ruling elite. You don't really appear to believe in anything of people of nowhere and all the rest of it, but one of the most defining tenses in technocratic culture, and you can see its appeal internationally and nationally, is a rejection of and hostility to contest or competition, particularly um, of a level um, of ideas. And this is really, really quit critical. The expulsion of contest, it's pre the presentation of contest as representing a danger of representing the possible looming of the restoration of historical bar barbarity, barbarism and Nazism, fascism and all the rest of it is absolutely integral to the formation of the new elite in terms of this element. The, the, these structures became throughout the 1990s and into the, the, the noughties absolutely integral uh, to the conduct of European uh, politics, not just between states, but between the state apparatuses, elites, um, and their peoples. And this was particularly strong, and it was actually very successful on its own terms in establishing a common culture between previously national state elites, uh, common rules and etiquette about the conduct of politics, the importance of a, a sort of pseudo-cosmopolitan, probably best embodied in the sort of cult of the Erasmus uh, student programme, in contrast to the vulgarity and potential barbarism of national um, communities, um, particularly in terms of, of lived life and experience, as well as the hollowing out of politics with the evacuation and outsourcing of key policies, such as economics in the Eurozone crisis or borders in the migration crisis, the EU helped weld together the elite in a new uh, cultural project, an enduring one, but while stressed in the present period, um, is, is resilient. And it's interesting the alchemy that the that this new sort of cultural turn um, uh, takes on 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 European elites. So if you look at the redefinition of Christian Democrat parties, for example, they're fascinating, absolutely integral in the post Cold War period in terms of combating um, communism and creating actually uh, mass parties that were usually bigger than uh, social democrat um, parties. But what's really interesting is to see how they are transformed from socially conservative mass parties to Eurocentrists. Viktor Orban, the conservative Hungarian leader, really highlights this shift. So he's castigated um, by Christ German Christian Democrats for holding you know, the views he holds on homosexuality and migration that were once just 20, 20 odd years ago or less, their foundational views. Today's Europeanized Christian Democrats wave the rainbow flag of the LB. GTQ or whatever it is, to browbeat Orban, as well as delivering stern lectures about the importance um, of welcoming migrants or refugees. And this cultural shift is really, really profound and takes place over the heads and behind the backs 
of conservative or Christian Democrat voters who, as election after election show, are not uh, impressed. And Seehofer, the, the former German, well, I don't know if he's, I never remember what exactly is happening in Germany. Um, Seehofer, who's a Bavarian conservative CSU, once joked that Viktor Orban could absolutely walk it in elections in, in Bavaria because he really did speak for um, the views, prejudices, some would say, um, of Christian Democrats. So what is this tenet of faith um, all about? So we need to ask ourselves, what is the national um, that the EU or other bodies are super to above or over? It's over, above and beyond the reach of the citizens of a territory, a people or nation. It removes politics from the democratic public sphere to a new realm. Yes, that's the world of statecraft, of diplomatic secrecy um, and etiquette, the world of EU summits. But most importantly, it comes together in the virtue signaling um, of elites castigating and wagging their fingers uh, at the people who just don't uh, get it. And so in that sense, populism represents a profound political uh, and moral challenge from the people to elite statecraft and the new culture um, that now endures in, in institutions of authority. Populists seek to mobilize and cohere communities of interest on the basis of a very different cultural and lived experience to elites. And in that sense, actually, they are real alternatives to stick up for family values, to stick up for Christian morality in terms of homosexuality is wrong, according to um, Christian uh, morality, is actually in, in many ways very much a real alternative um, to the uh, uh, elite, uh, to the elite's view. And it's really important, I think, to stress that populism does not represent apathy or, or disconnection being left behind, as elites like to uh, present it. But actually, it's the opposite. It's an attempt to create or assert a different political culture that acknowledges the lives and values of people, their families, um, their workplaces in their um, communities. So the cultural component to Brexit was very clear from the start. 22% of graduates voted to leave the EU compared to 53% of non-graduates who backed uh, Brexit. Support for leaving the EU rose to rose to over 70% for those who, who left school um, before 18 um, for trades or jobs without going on to higher education um, or university. Why is this distinction important? Why is it still worth talking about? Because those 70 odd percent um, without degrees, without staying on until school until 18, are much more likely to be attached to ideas such as the nation, democracy, community, protectionism, redistribution, and the importance um, of boundaries and borders. Those who've gone through the mill uh, of university and higher education are trained and stilled, um, not necessarily, but more likely to be trained and stilled in elite culture and its wars um, via uh, higher education. They're certainly more likely to be hostile to nation. And as we've seen with Brexit, to, to uh, 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 um, hostile to, to democratic decisions that cut against those 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 uh, those norms, and I think this cultural difference between educated and uneducated is actually more important than economic class, although obviously it overlays it. In the sense of cultural victory for the wrong people, Brexit represented the deadliest blow to the new elite and the new elite in its international sense 
in its history over the last generation, much more so than Trump, especially when it was confirmed in the 2019 general election with that swing to the Conservatives in many previously Labour um, areas. So the new elitist ideology explicitly devalues, and the only sense in which it is a coherent ideology is in its explicit devaluation of the moral worth of, of individuals and majority who, with the Brexit vote, showed that they live outside the world and reject the world of alleged um, expertise and knowledge represented by, by the new managers, the new elite. Brexit hardened the divisions and expressions of new elite disdain, even hatred, even as it weakened and challenged their, their dominant uh, culture. And this tension and, and dynamic is something that, that's worth coming back to. It's, it, I think it's quite profound. Now, I want to argue that with the emergence of the new super tenants, supernational tenants of faith and institution came a profound rewriting of history. And it's often false or at the very least um, arguable. The virtue of the international or supranational is now presented as a historical fact. And in that sense, today's elite uh, faces a, a theoretical dilemma identified by Hannah Arendt in her 1954 essay, Truth and Politics, which I recommended reading for this discussion. She wrote, a political attitude towards facts must indeed tread the very narrow path between the danger of taking them as the results of some necessary development which man, men could not prevent and about which they can do, therefore do nothing and the danger of denying them of trying to manipulate them out of the world. The rewriting of history is quite profound, particularly in underpinning the EU, the supranational, the current moment as an irreversible process and super-internationals, supranational institutions as being all that stands between peace and war, civilizational barbarism, as the unleashing of popular passion and dark racist xenophobic popular forces that represent the political state of nature for people who live or might reject the tutelage of the, the new, um, the new um, elite. So back in 2014, Jose Manuel Barroso um, asserted that the EU was uh, about the EU said no other political construction to date has proven to be a better way of organizing life to lessen the barbarity um, in this world. This was even after the Eurozone crisis. This was even after the sort of destruction, um, the, 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 the throttling um, of Greece and other Southern European economies. It's an incredible uh, historical claim um, to make. So to echo Arendt, it's the presentation of a political culture and institutions as a necessary development which men could not prevent and about which they can therefore do nothing. Um, it's the, 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 the EU and the attitude around the, the supranational, the tenet of faith, really is the, 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 the realisation in institutions of Fukuyama's famous 1989 essay, The End of History. Have we in fact reached the end of history? Are there in any words any fundamental contradictions in human life that would be resolvable uh, by an alternative political uh, economic structure? Even back in the 60s, Hannah Arendt was complaining that there is no longer any discussion about different forms um, of, of communal um, life. And this, this idea that um, the EU represents the, in, the end of history, that there literally is no other 
um, possibility um, organizationally and really has found its um, highest form um, of, of, of uh, highest form of expression. To rewrite history, to give the extinguishing of political alternatives a justification in the iron law of historical development, to make it a fact is a profound development that illustrates again the extent of a populist challenge. Populists, populists by their very existence, overturn that version of history that is presented as, as factual. And perhaps more dangerously, reality and changing conditions to challenge um, that um, uh, worldview, which is more entrenched than at any time um, in, in 200 um, years, I would argue. So as well as presenting the supranational as the end of history, the new elite uses denial and manipulation to either suppress factual events um, or to manipulate the past as a tool to represent those challenging the status quo, particularly as Nazis um, or fascists. Nazism and fascism, contrary to most historic, the most authoritative historical accounts, is now overwhelmingly presented not as the historical truth of state elites turning away from democracy and suppressing democratic freedoms, but as for weakening, often of supranational political institutions, the judiciary and international law, but allowed a political state of nature to emerge via the unchecked passions um, of uh, democracies. The British elite, with the support of its European friends, almost tore down democratic politics in the aftermath of the Brexit vote with a carnival of lies and manipulation. And people will obviously remember the, 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 the presentation of that poll's death in Essex as the inevitable um, expression um, of the vote. Elite discussion of conspiracy theories about disinformation or Russian interference. If you want to know about conspiracy theories, follow Carol on Carol Cadwalla, the Guardian journalist um, on, on Twitter. Elite discussion of conspiracy theories or disinformation reveal much. The cultural of outlook of the new elite isn't aimed at winning an argument. It's meant to smear. It's meant to show their moral, uh, the moral inferiority of opponents, their moral superiority. That's the only reason why they, cook, they, um, they talk about disinformation. They get it, we don't. Again, this cannot be understated as an anti-democratic uh, development. It's a really profound evasion is the abandonment um, of politics um, by argument. Politics no longer uh, is about argument, it's about sneering. Um, it's a way that actually shows how diminished um, that realm um, has um, become. One development I find of particular concern is, is, is the suppression of, of factual truth. Rob mentioned the, the current Northern Ireland um, uh, negotiation. European elite opinion, totally categorically denies, as with many of their allies in the UK, that the original impetus behind the notion of triggering the so-called Article 16 um, to suspend elements of the Brexit Treaty's Irish protocol actually came from the EU side, actually. It's a European um, idea. At the end of January this year, the European Commission was so alarmed that the contest posed by UK's quicker vaccination rate, mainly actually using Pfizer jabs made in Europe, so alarmed at that, they actually considered cutting off uh, vaccine supplies. Legislation was tabled, legislation was drawn up to plug a potential hole in exports, given that a key part of Pfizer's international supply chain is in Ireland. The Commission actually legislated, or then withdrew it, to trigger Article, trigger article 16 to prevent any vaccine exports into Northern Ireland and thus onto the 
UK. That plan was only abandoned after an outcry from Dublin um, via press reports um, and horror from Pfizer, an American company, who recoiled at the prospect um, of the EU destroying um, its production supply chain, which is probably the most um, efficient and productive one uh, in the uh, entire world. But the European Commission was so alarmed at the contest, the contrast between the UK jabbing more people um, and the EU um, not, that it was prepared to tear down um, that um, uh, supply chain. Those events, I witnessed them, I was at the briefings, I was there, are now denied. It's now the UK that is cast as the bad one for considering the use of the same procedure in Northern Ireland with, with problems that at least um, are real, even admitted um, on the EU side. So looking forward, this year's strains and stresses of a vaccine contest is a mark of things to come um, as international supply chains um, uh, come under pressure um, with some of the problems of the pandemic, um, revealing the impact of outsourced policies, outsourced production, outsourced economic um, organization via supranational setups, um, such as the um, EU single market, which uh, again has to be said, is entirely um, regressive when it comes to um, uh, organizing uh, production supply chains and certainly in terms of, of, of working uh, conditions for, for, for many people. It's also worth recording, recalling as the shape of things to come, but the hostility um, and suppression um, of the Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine in the EU and the EES, US via grossly exaggerated safety fears or in America just plain protectionism came because the medicine was sold initially at cost with a focus on building new, shorter, more resilient and quicker supply chains in an pretty implicit, ex explicit uh, a challenge to conventional pharma, um, particular Pfizer. I, I really don't think the poor old Jenner Institute really understood that when they imposed their model on Astrica selling cost, reorganizing supply chains. So for example, um, India and Asia would be independent of European production. I don't think they really realized what a challenge they were making to the supranational um, order and the Americans and the Europeans um, um, stamped on them and stamped on that um, vaccine. Um, uh, as a result, obviously, they were helped a bit by some of um, AstraZeneca's problems with production. One lesson of the pandemic for many voters and businesses has been the danger of extended um, supply chains, often cemented into place with supranational regula regulations um, that have fractured or certainly underperformed um, under stress. Um, the cumulative uh, crisis in European logistics, particularly road haulage, um, is an expression of this and problems created by outsourcing and social dumping that are inherent in the EU single market. Britain, while suffering more in the short term from drivers shortages, as we've heard so much um, about because of leaving the single market, actually has shorter logistic uh, supply chains in many cases just due to being an island. Many EU countries, Germany is a very fine example of this, have logistics and supply chains um, that are completely internationalized, uh, very long, and are now invariably more dependent on exploitative uh, practices uh, such as cabotage um, in the haulage industry, which I'll come back to in a sec. In 2018, this is 
very rarely mentioned in the UK context because it all has to be pre presented um, by the, the sort of chattering classes of the problem with Brexit. Europe's supply and logistics chains nearly collapsed um, due to a shortage of drivers um, as French, Dutch, uh, German and other West European HGVG drivers left the trade um, without replacement due to what was becoming a decades-long reliance on Central and East European uh, drivers, often paid much less, creating an overall shortage of some 120,000 uh, drivers. That shortfall was made up by giving visas, uh, visas to um, HGV drivers from Ukraine and Belarus, creating shortages there, which are now quite acute, and further driving down uh, wages in the EU. Cabotage. Um, cabotage is a practice whereby, for example, a Polish driver can cross a border into Germany to deliver one load and then can sit, continue with other deliveries, sometimes for weeks or even months, has also hollowed out and effectively destroyed a trade that used to be a key way uh, or a key form of social mobility um, for working class uh, people um, uh, in the EU. If a Polish driver can basically do two weeks of deliveries um, in Germany, just think of the impact um, that has for the German HGV driver who's um, paid some 60 odd percent more um, uh, than the, the poll. So it's more than a crisis in a supply chain, it's a crisis in a model of outsourcing policies. The importance of resilient supply chains uh, and an HGV trade, an HGV trade that was real in terms of, um, uh, in terms of the lives of many millions uh, of people, a way of escaping um, working class life, you work hard in your 20s, you buy your own rig, um, maybe by the end of your 30s you own a couple of rigs with other drivers and you've escaped um, the working class. That's been completely closed off, um, completely hollowed out like so many other trades um, in the world, uh, casualized single market um, world of today. So what's the next phase um, to, to, to um, end on? I think there is a more or less conscious effort um, in the sense that it's slightly forced, it's a product of, 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 of some unease over the, the challenges um, that um, the new elite has faced to use climate change as a new organizing principle overlying the supranational principle. But I think it really does face greater problems and obstacles than the earlier elite formation phase that led to the EU, for example. So one problem is, is that climate change policy has become linked to superpower rivalry, particularly in terms of the deepening contest between the US or China. That poses problems. Does the EU get drawn, for example, into taking sides between an American policy or a Chinese one? Many European countries are more sympathetic to China and the United States, particularly on trade terms. Many see Beijing as a more natural ally on CO2 reduction than America, the 20th century fossil fuel power. There's already a contest between the EU and UK. Although British policy is likely to become more contested domestically, as it will be less rooted in the supranational outside the European Union. It's almost certainly easier for European countries to outsource eco-austerity and higher energy bills to the EU, a la the euro and internal devaluation in the financial crisis. But there the UK could represent a challenge if voters push the other way and the, EU, uh, the UK goes the other way. Within the EU itself, 
within European politics, there are really significant clashes of interest. Germany is castigated, wrongly in my view, putting its national interest first with the Nord Stream gas pipeline uh, from Russia, which undermined European allies such as Poland, Germany and other anti-nuclear governments, Austria, Ireland, etc., are trying to create a, a more favourable investment climate for renewables over nuclear power. That will not be accepted by France with its many allies, a majority of that. One of the problems for climate change is a new ideology is that while being a product in many ways of elite ideology itself, it is manifested very concretely in the realm of production and household costs, um, merely than, than merely constitutionally um, or culturally. It requires uh, mobilization or certainly shifts um, in resources um, and, and people. Um, it requires people to be mobilized. It requires um, the, the elites that, that, that espouse these policies to be able to cast to get people uh, what to do. Um, so it's fair to conclude that the supranational still remains the tenet and in fact the historical justification for the new cultural elite, um, but it is under pressure. There are real dangers ahead, actually, when such profoundly, when such a profoundly anti-political outlook, deeply hostile to contestation, becomes um, stressed. And I think actually the dangers of a reaction to some of these pressures um, is one of the de defining um, factors in the current moment. You've been listening to Bruno Waterfield, Brussels correspondent at The Times, with the lecture, Globalism and the Challenge to the International Elite. We'll return with the next podcast in the series, which will feature Helen Serrells, Chief Operating Officer at Feature Story News, who will reflect on Brideshead Revisited, World Wars and the End of the Old Elite. 